I am tired and worn down because I've just been working long hours. But I had a really wonderful class today, so that feels good. Awesome. I had a great class yesterday. So it's intro to BioAnth? Yeah, that's what I'm basically I'm teaching. Yeah. And this will already have, this will have happened by the time this airs. And, and he seems okay with me divulging his identity. Lee Berger's son, Matthew Berger, is a student in my class. So for those listeners unfamiliar, Lee Berger is a relatively famous paleoanthropologist who found Homo naledi, Homo sediba, and does a lot of open science. And his son, Matthew, when he was 10, is actually the person who found Homo sediba sitting alongside the road. And Matt is one of our undergrads. And when I talk about fossilization and how fossils are found, mm-hmm. I was already using Naledi and Sediba examples from hearing, mm-hmm. from having heard Lee's stories. And so he's going to give a guest lecture Very cool. on Wednesday for the class. And I'm telling the students, you know, like, so this, this this guy came and his son was interested and he came here. So he's agreed to come to the class and give a talk. And he's out there smirking the whole time, you know, and I'm making eye contact with him here and there. And I he, he talks in class. It's, everyone knows his name is Matt. Everyone knows he's South African mm-hmm. and he's been to Madagascar. And he's like, you know, but nobody's put it together yet. <laughs> so it'll be fun. It's really hands fun. Up. I'm, I'm kind of in the same similar thing, but I did a weird paleo reconstruction activity today which is a lot of fun but anyway we should probably talk about our guest today before she comes on oh that's right because <laughs> it is that time so i invited dr nikki holly on from yale and we both know nikki but i'll start the intro if you don't mind you can jump right in i've known nikki for several years because of the work she does in samoa with steve mcgarvey she is part of a legacy of human adaptation research that began with paul baker we interviewed previously morgan hoke and bill leonard who have inherited the mantle of human adaptation research in highlands peru and then later he went to samoa to begin work on modernization and human adaptation in Samoa. And some of his students were my predecessor here, Jim Binden, as well as Steve McGarvey. And Nikki is, we're both now generations down, but Nikki is central at this point still in doing work in Samoa and looking at a variety of factors that we'll talk in more detail about. But suffice it to say, there's a legacy there. I came to know Nikki through the Human Biology Association meetings. And as I began working in Samoa with Michaela on Zika and now on the tattoo research, Nikki's embeddedness there has been critical to our work. And so we collaborated extensively. And so she's a friend, but also her work is really, really fascinating. And they're really pushing the boundaries and addressing some really interesting questions and finding finding things that have been looked for for 30 years. And that is part of what we're going to be talking about today, as well as some of the delicacy of working in these places where anthropologists have been working for 30 years. It's not, it's not all sunshine and kittens. It's, it can be fraught. So without further ado, she's actually on the line with us now. Hello, Nikki. Hi, Chris and Kara. Thank you so much for having me. How are you You're doing abs- today? It's only been, what, 
12, 24 hours since we last spoke. <laughs> since we last spoke and neither of us have died yet from our freshest flu or our, <laughs> our issues with all of the viruses that the students seem to be bringing into our classrooms this first semester. But yeah, I'm good. I'm excited to, excited to have the chance to chat with you both. Thank you. And thank you for making the time. I know you're incredibly busy, but we like to start these episodes getting your origin story uh, and the origin story of all of our guests of to, to know a little bit more of what set you on the path into anthropology and human biology and why you actually decided to pursue it as a career. I love this question and I'm so glad that you're doing this podcast because I think I went through a lot of years of thinking that all of my happy accidents were were really not the norm. <laughs> so I love this question. I was that kid who was always really fascinated by how the human body worked, but just never ever wanted to pick up a scalpel and do anything, <laughs> do anything on the individual level at dealing with those problems. So all the way through high school and, and university, I took a lot of courses in biology and chemistry and and really was kind of the ideal medical school candidate, I think, um, and was just lucky enough that I happened to happen to discover a way that I could combine what I enjoyed with public health practice. I think in the UK, public health was not a thing. And so I was lucky to get amazing mentorship. Noel Cameron, um, who I did my PhD with, was lecturing one day and telling us a little bit about his background. And he'd somehow managed to, to make human biology work within a, a really clinical setting. And so for me, it was kind of about following in his footsteps. I was saying a little bit about your work in Samoa, and I want to give listeners a little more context because we've actually interviewed now several people whose whose work is based in Samoa, and, and certainly in part that's because I work there, and so I'm familiar with those people. But also, Samoa actually has played a large role in the history of the discipline of of human biology, and that's that's sort of what I was I was setting up there with Paul Baker's human adaptability research in Peru, and then later in Samoa. But could you tell us about how you came to be there and then something about this massive project that you guys have been undertaking here yeah, now lately? Of I mean, I, I think before I do that, I think that Samoa's kind of centrality to so much of this story is so much a testament to who they are as people. So, you know, because you've been there, the curiosity on the individual level, but also the drive on the government level to really be at the forefront of, of unpicking some of these really complex public health challenges has allowed them to, to kind of open up to the scientific community internationally in a way that a lot of other places have not. So I think that a lot of that backstory is, is kind of a testament to who they are as people. My involvement in Samoa got, Steve will kill me for telling this story actually, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna do it anyway. So when I was finishing up my PhD, I really didn't know what I wanted to do next. I was pretty sure I didn't want to be in a in an academic position, which is ironic given that I'm talking to you from my office at Yale. But he said to me, okay, if you're not sure, write a list of the 10 people that you really would love to work with and start emailing them. Start emailing them your CV. And, you know, on that list was some of the people you mentioned. Larry was on the list, um, Babette Zemmel, Ellen Demereth. Those are the people that I really look up to in our field. And I sent out my emails with my CV, total cold emails to all of them. And, and Steve was on this list too. And he was actually top of the list. But um, everyone replied except Steve. 
<laughs> so I was just mortified. And a few months later, the, literally the day I submitted my PhD, I went to Chicago for the HBA AAP meetings. And I ran into Steve really early on in that meeting. And he said, well, what are you going to do next? And I said, well, you know, actually, I did email you about that. And it turned out that the, the same day he had received an R01 award from NIH to do some continued genetic work in Samoa, he needed somebody to go and lead the data collection for that study, be on the ground in Samoa for a year or so. And I really just wanted to be anywhere but my desk. So <laughs> it was a perfect combination. And like I said, total happy accident, but hands down the best chance conversation. It's the chance conversation that will define my career, I think. I think there is a wonderful lesson, because I know we have a lot of graduate student listeners and even undergraduates, that there is no harm in sending out kind of cold professional emails of reaching out to people. Uh, and that even if they don't respond, like Steve McGarvey didn't respond, your name is still in his mind. And for all we know, it's that email that, you know, got that conversation going, even if it's in the back of his head, we can pretend that. Exactly. I mean, Steve is mortified because he holds himself to to probably one of the highest standards of anybody I've ever met in terms of being diligent about responding to those emails. And so he jokes that two of his best students or two of his best mentees um, came about because they both called him out on not replying. He's pretty sure they're the only two emails he's ever not responded to. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, those particularly, I think that... It, a lot of the listeners will be members of HBA or AAPA. We're lucky in that we've got such a supportive society and community that quite often somebody will send back a very warm response that just says, not right now, but, but like you say, they're in the, you're in the back of their mind. Send those emails. And I just love hearing that he takes pride in replying. I mean, that's important because most students that I talk to think they're bothering me, think people are mm -hmm. too busy to reply. I mean, it's that, the best form of flattery, isn't it? When a student writes to you and says, I mean, it helps if they get the area of your research right or the university that you're at. Sometimes you get those emails that you wonder. <laughs> but, um, but if you can at least get the person's uh, area of research right and demonstrate a genuine interest in what they're doing, all of us are just so flattered to receive those emails. It's the coolest. For yeah. me, as long as you don't just call me hello or <laughs> hello, Lynn. <laughs> um, so we heard how you basically got involved in Samoa, but it seems, granted I don't know the original origin story of that project with Steve McGarvey, but that project seems to massively expand over the past several years and involve lots of moving parts. And so if you can maybe give us a bit of an overview of the different projects that are ongoing and the different goals. Yeah, of course. So it has somewhat exploded um, since 2010. So 2010 was this very focused, um, as I said, genome-wide association study that took us around 33 villages on the island um, and, and led us to meet and measure and collect information from over 3,500 people, which was super cool. Um, we were lucky enough, and, and I'm sure that we'll talk about this a little bit, we were lucky enough to find something really fascinating in the, in the genetics of the participants that then led us to just a number of different research questions. And, and most importantly, I think, gave us the funding and the questions to be able to establish this really cool infrastructure in Samoa. So in June of 2017, we established a, a research center in Samoa. So we're in the capital city. We're actually in the Ministry of Health's 
building, which is super cool from a kind of passage of information, both up and down scenario. And we, we have got five NIH grants that are funded that are looking at various questions around both continuing to figure out what's going on with the genetic and cardiometabolic risk, but then have also expanded particularly into my area of interest, which is more about maternal child health and some of those early life risk factors for, for some of the diseases that we're seeing later on in adulthood. So we have a we have a staff of 10 Samoans, which we're super proud of. We actually handed over the research center a few months ago. It's entirely Samoan-led. We don't have a U.S investigator on the ground and this was one of the things that two years ago was really important to me that we created this infrastructure that was sustainable so the program is growing we have hosted I think 25 student internships in the last three years that have gone to gone to students from I think eight different institutions at this point with a real focus on training Samoan students so that they are able to um, hopefully carry on this legacy have the, the tools of carrying on Samoa's legacy as being at the forefront of all of this. So listeners cannot see because you only get the audio, but the excitement and pride in, in Nikki's face, it's, it's so obvious that you're really happy with how this has gone and you're really proud of the students and then the, the, the reach that this has had. Uh, so I wanted to make sure our listeners could understand uh, the impact that this has not only in Samoa, but on you as a researcher too. I'll add, I got this quote from Marmot and he got it from someone else, but the, the gist of it is a lot of organizations feel like hot messes on the inside, but look integrated on the outside. So when you're in them, you don't feel like you're doing as much. So it's, it's cool to see that pride reflect on your face because I saw your organization. I saw, I've seen it a few times. I was there when you set up at the Ministry of Health, I believe, when you guys were getting your DEXA machine set up. I was there again this summer and thank you for the scale once again. Um, <laughs> I did not go to get a scale. I went to say hi, but, but fortunately, it's great to have colleagues in country who are set up and can help with other research. But but I got to see the facility. I got to meet uh, some of the folks Nikki's talking about, and it's it is really impressive, and it's everything she just described. So. I want to be so clear. I mean, I have played this organizational role in this definitely, but it has been such a team effort. And, and one of the reasons why I think we've been so successful is the fact that two of our research assistants have been with us since 2010. Mm. So they have just this incredible institutional knowledge that surpasses even mine and and allows me to navigate this situation where I, you know, I could spend the entirety of my career in Samoa, but I would always still be an outsider. You know, I have a, I have a Samoan community and I have a Samoan family and I feel extremely well connected to people there. And we have great back and forth with our, with our colleagues and collaborators. But my research team on the ground have really been the ones who've helped me navigate all of that culture. And, and the credit goes to them for building, for building what we have. It's really an inspiring place to be and all kudos to them. And I really love how your team is doing social media in Samoan. You know, Jessica Hart and I were talking about this just recently because, you know, there are a lot of people there who, who speak English, which is helpful for me, but it's clear that their first language is Samoan and many people, they feel much more comfortable speaking in Samoan. And so there's definitely a simplification going both ways and it behooves us to communicate with them in a language they understand. So your team 
having people fluent in the language and, and native seem to be, I can't read Samoan, so I don't know, but they seem <laughs> yeah. to be doing a wonderful job at that. So one of the things that when we set up the Permanent Research Center, you know, we knew that we were going to get a lot of questions from people about what are you doing here? Like, what is your role in the community? Who are your collaborators? How are the community being engaged in all of the work that you're doing? And just knowing how active our own research team were on Facebook and the fact that cell phone technology and, and internet is spreading so quickly throughout Samoa, we really thought that social media was one kind of platform that we could use to to really say both to be very transparent about what we were doing and so some of that is about teaching people what the equipment that we use does and why we use it or why we ask questions that we do in our surveys but part of it also is about saying you know we're here like this is a thing we're committed to being here for the long term and what are the questions that you're really excited about us answering and it's been a nice forum for that actually every so often we get really just super thoughtful emails from the community who say hey have you thought about so and so and I don't think that we would be able to hear that if we didn't have this didn't have this dialogue and I won't lie it's been an effort to to make sure that somebody posts on that thing every day for the last two and a half years but we've done it and we're really we're really proud of it yeah it's impressive and so you had mentioned this, and I kind of want to come back to it, that part of this started with that, that genome-wide association study. Chris and I very briefly reviewed <laughs> two papers. Um, I'll just say their titles quickly. Prevalence of Adiposity in Associated Cardiometabolic Risk Factors in the Samoan Genome-Wide Association Study. That was one of them. And then a thrifty variant in the CREVRF strongly influences body mass index in Samoans. I was wondering if you could just very briefly take us through kind of what those studies were, what the goals were, research questions, that kind of thing, and, uh, you know, results kind of idea. Yeah, of course. So, so the genome-wide association study really did set out to see if there was any underlying genetic architecture that could speak to why Samoa and so many other people in the Pacific are struggling with issues of obesity and diabetes and hypertension, really at, at disproportionate prevalence compared to other places in the world. And so we collected, as I said, data from 3,500 or so people. Um, they were kind enough to, to offer us blood samples and many, many anthropometric measures from which we were able to do this genome-wide association study. And what that, what that identified was a, was a genetic variant in chromosome 5, CREBRF, which you mentioned a second ago, which has this almost unbelievable paradoxical association with BMI and diabetes. So having a copy of this gene variant raises somebody's risk or odds of being overweight or obese, but in the same person at the same time decreases their odds of having diabetes. So there are all kinds of hypotheses about why this might be, and some of them have to do with the evolutionary history of Samoans and how they settled in the Pacific and the energetic cost of doing that, and how those individuals who settled in Samoa were perhaps protected somewhat by this gene and able to store energy more efficiently for times of nutritional stress, and certainly that seemed to be what some of the mouse and cell models that we ran before we published the paper on CREBRF spoke to. So, so yeah, a lot of our work has been 
trying to figure out what this thing does because I think after the group and and I hope I did my research team justice by talking about that because I get nervous every time thinking that a geneticist is listening to my lay explanation you know once we got over the shock of of checking the data about 30,000 times to make sure that it really did have this opposite effect on BMI and diabetes. Our immediate thought is, okay, how do we go to this community that we've been working in for so long and say, yeah, you know, a lot of you have this thing, but we really don't know how it works or why it does the thing it does. So the coolest finding, I think it's nice to, it's nice to be able to, in some ways, change that rhetoric around obesity that is about individual blame and individual behavior and say to the Samoans, okay, we think that there is some reason 40% of you carry a gene variant that is going to promote weight gain or overweight and obesity. But yeah, raised, raised kind of more questions than answers, which is what's driving a lot of our work right now. So, I mean, what you found is in some ways what anthropologists started looking for, what, 40 years ago and then gave up, right? There was the thrifty genotype model, then the thrifty phenotype model, then fetal programming, then developmental origins of health and disease. And now we're like, oh, wait, thrifty genotype, maybe? How does it fit in with that and how has that been received? You know, we framed it as a thrifty gene in the in the Nature paper that Kara mentioned just a second ago, and we certainly think that some of the evidence points towards that. But there's a lot more work to do to figure out actually what's going on at the whole body level. We did a lot of work in mouse models and in pre-adipocytes, so pre-fat cell models that speak to the fact that that it has a role in in energy balance and energy metabolism that could have come, as you said, through some notion of thrift. But yeah, that's what we're focused on. I think there was a really nice editorial that accompanied the paper when it was first published that, that was excited about the fact that maybe this was evidence of a thrifty gene, because as you said, this hypothesis has been so controversial in the literature for so long. It certainly has allowed people to start pursuing that hypothesis again and to become excited about it. I know there's been some controversy around this and wondering if you want to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, definitely. So, so I'll address what happened in Samoa first, I think, because, you know, our immediate reaction to this is as scientists, wow, this is the coolest. But then as human beings, you have this moment where you check yourself and say, okay, but what is the impact on this community going to be? And, at Kristen talking about the legacy of work in Samoa, you know, all this goes back to Margaret Mead and some of the ways that Samoa felt like potentially they were stigmatized by some of the things that she wrote about, about their behavior or kind of life choices. And so we definitely didn't want to have another situation like that on our hands. We also didn't want the community to say, okay, well, if this is a genetic thing, forget it. Like obesity is in my fate. I'm just going to eat whatever I want. Or if it was that they had the protection against diabetes that you know eating whatever doesn't matter anymore so that was a big concern and then also I think secondarily to that was this idea of when we were when we were publishing this data it was right around the time when things like 23andMe were becoming very commercially available and we were kind of concerned that somebody like that was going to go to Samoa and try and pitch this product that could tell you whether or not you carry the Krebs variant and we just hated the idea of that for this community without really knowing 
what it does. So we went back to the community probably about 18 months after discovering this and a little bit before the paper came out in the press. And I remember going to see the prime minister actually, and I bought a, I bought a new Samoan outfit to go. And I was so scared. Like, I don't think I've ever been more anxious ever in my entire life. And <laughs> it's Steve McGarvey and I, and um, one of our really close Samoan collaborators. And we go into the prime minister's office and, and Steve is giving a little bit of the background story. And I think just thinking he was being lovely and generous said to me, well, Nikki, why don't you explain <laughs> what we found? And so I just remember these beads of sweat gathering <laughs> down my back at the time. <laughs> the thing was traumatizing. I can't, I mean, they have really good air conditioning. <laughs> so I'm explaining to the prime minister, I'm, I'm trying to explain that even though we found this in Samoans, that we really think there's a lot of evidence that this is something that is present in many, many other Pacific people, which we now know it is. And he, he kind of leaned back in his chair and crossed his arms and he said, but we're the first. And I am backtracking. Like, I'm like, yes, but we, you know, we think that this is present everywhere else. And eventually he leans forward. And, and in my memory of this, he's like inches from me, but I don't think that was actually the case. And he said, but we are the first. And I just gave up and I said, yeah, yeah, you're the first. We discovered it here. He banged his fist on the table and he said, well, we're going to be the first to solve this problem. How do we do that? What can we do for you to help you to understand what this is doing and to start to build interventions? That's amazing. And it was just I, this flood of relief, but also just this like call to action for me that has been everything about the last five years of my career. It's like, okay, how do we live up to that? Like all of our work has to directly go to fulfilling what the prime minister asked in that minute, which was for us to, if you're going to discover this, you need to support us in doing something about it. And so that's really what we've been doing. The scientific community's response to this has been mixed. The paper has been cited almost 90 times um, since it was published in 2016. As I said, there was an editorial that went with it. Many, many groups have replicated the finding now across the Pacific, which is super cool. It spoke, I think, to the importance of looking beyond the populations that we traditionally do GWAS analyses in. So Europeans, less so African-Americans and Asians, but speaks to the importance of looking in those smaller underrepresented populations for big findings like this that, that perhaps have have important consequences for health but I say it's been mixed so we we were called out very publicly actually interestingly at, during the presidential panel at the AAPAs this year and accused of profiteering um, for our relationships with Samoa practices around ethical engagement have been questioned we recently actually submitted a paper and and in the reviews were asked to produce the consent forms because the review always concerned that the Samoan population perhaps didn't know what they were agreeing to. We were concerned that by publishing our paper, it would set a precedent for the community of not caring about the impact that doing this work in these communities has. Were we using sustainable methods, culturally appropriate methods? And it's really tough because I take that stuff incredibly personally. I was the person who stood in front of those 3,500 people next to my research assistants with the consent form. It's critical that we think about how we engage with communities, but there also needs to be this forum where we talk about what we're doing, where we talk about best practices, and where we can publicly kind of say, this is what we're doing, and have a conversation about this rather than the rather than the routes that I think have been taken so far to, to address this. So it's mixed. 
as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, so because of 23andMe's commercial ventures, you guys patented the gene? Not exactly. <laughs> we were extremely conscious at the time that we published this about the 23andMe and had been already kind of approached by a couple of companies that had commercial interests. Um, and so in talking with the Samoan government, we went ahead and filed a patent application, mm. knowing that that would give them at least some time um, and pre prevent commercial entities from capitalizing on this immediately before anybody really knew what it did and before any agreements were in place to make sure that, that any profits from that flowed back to the Samoans. I mean, that was our primary concern. And so we filed the application. It's interesting. I have learned so much in this process about legalities and um, patent law, which is, which is kind of new. And it's interesting. So in the US, patent law kind of outlines the fact that somebody from an international setting cannot meet the definition, or in our case, in our scenario, the Samoan partners didn't meet the, in, the definition of an inventor. And so our approach to this and our conversation with them was that we would go ahead and file this application. It does not have a Samoan on it, which I think is public knowledge and somebody can go and look at that and, and jump to a conclusion that we're bad actors or that we were not acting in a way that was supportive of the Samoan community. But really the backstory was that we immediately then began to talk with the Samoan government about, okay, how do we make sure that if there is any commercial gain, that it comes to the study population directly or through the Ministry of Health or benefits Samoa in some way. The optics of it are not ideal. I mean, it's not, it's not what any of us would choose, I don't think. But, um, but yeah, so that's the way it happened. And, and you, don't get to, you don't get to write the backstory in one of these things. There's a responsibility that we have going into these things. And part of it sort of forces us to thicken our skins because those hits are going to come. It's so difficult to not be defensive. I, I work with just like, you talk about privilege. I work with the best group of people, the best group of scientists I could ever wish for. I mean, they are smart and motivated, but they there's not a single one of them who at the table would not say that this is so much more than science for them now, that this is really about what's going on in this community and that that's driving us as a group. And so there's, everybody had very mixed responses to it. There was some anger there to some of these accusations. It's kind of sadness. As I said, I, I take this extremely personally, but it's important that we start to talk about it. And so I think I'm actually going to be submitting an abstract to HBA this year that there really is about community engagement because we don't, we don't often talk about all of the stuff that we're doing. It is guiding every decision that we make. We're very conscious of the conversation around ethical engagement. We want to be a part of it, but we recognize that in our position that we are always outsiders to this community. And the best thing that we can do is try and promote equity by training people from within those communities the best way we know how to be our equals and our, mm. our colleagues and hopefully eventually our bosses. I like that. That's a good session idea. There needs to be a yeah. session on how <laughs> folks actually respond to these concerns that either come from the community or from others in terms of ethics, not just here's the science, because I think grad students and junior researchers are literally afraid to work with certain populations who, frankly, like they don't need white saviors, no. but sometimes they don't have the expertise 
in their community at present. Yeah, that's exactly it. And I think we need to we need to have this forum where these discussions can happen openly and where it's okay to say, we might not have always done this perfectly. I'm, I'm sitting here painting this brilliant rosy picture of how wonderful we are as scientists and people, but we've definitely made missteps. We definitely have had occasions where there's an individual participant who really didn't understand what we were asking. All of us have had that in our research. And I think it's so important to be able to say that and have an audience who is not going to jump to conclusions immediately, but is who's going to say, these are the things I've learned. These are the best ways to deal with it because we can only get better as scientists and human beings by having those conversations. Yeah, that'd be a great panel session. Speaking then of the hum- our human side, you post lovely, lovely pictures when you're not collecting data from uh, Messina and various paradisical spots in Samoa. How do you maintain or try to maintain life-work balance? Well, I'm privileged that somebody actually looks at my Instagram, so that's <laughs> But please know how curated that is. For of course. I see from my parents who like to know I'm alive and um, in food. You know, when Cara and I were talking about doing this interview, she said, yeah, you know, we'll end up with a question about work-life balance, and I just burst out laughing. <laughs> and she said, don't worry, everybody who... I was going to say, you and every guest. <laughs> so it turns out that there's a circulating myth among my postdocs and PhD students that I actually don't sleep. I'm trying to disprove that at the moment. I just have the most phenomenal friends and family who both work in academia and don't. I have a brand brand new baby niece who I am super excited about as of last week so I can't wait to get back to the UK to see her. I live in Rhode Island which means I have amazing coast and um, and lovely restaurants to go to so when I'm away from work I'm really away from work. That's good. Well put. How can people, you mentioned you have Instagram, What's your Instagram handle so people can follow you in other ways well, to be able to get involved? Yeah, I mean, if you want to follow my highly curated world, world travel adventures, you can, you can go to my Instagram, which is literally just Nikki Hawley. You can look me up on the School of Public Health website. And as I said, I really welcome students reaching out to me for opportunities to work in Samoa. I have loved that we've kind of become a hub for Samoan students who are here in the US want to reconnect with their roots and their culture and that's been a fun experience but really the biggest thing is the Facebook page so you can reach us at at Yale Olanga O-L-A-G-A and Olanga um, in Samoan actually is the word for life it literally means the whole of life or the process of living which is which is totally what we're about and the research that we're doing that's wonderful Chris, how can people get a hold of you? I also have highly curated Instagram. <laughs> I have like 20, but I'll just say what I usually say, which is you can at me, Chris underscore L-Y on Twitter. Kara, what about you? Where can you be added? You can at me on Twitter. It's at Kara Akabak. And we have been the Sausage of Science. For the Human Biology Association. We want to thank everyone out there for listening. We want to thank Nikki for joining us today. We would appreciate it if you find people would like us, love us, review us, add us, do all the things. All the things. And a huge thank you to Caroline Owens, who edits all of our episodes and makes us sound smart. So until next time, thank you, everyone. Thank you, Nikki. Thank you so much, both of you.